And good morning, my name is Chad Donahoe, I'm the interim pastor at Grace. And if you've been with us for some weeks now, you know that we are in a series on the minor prophets. The minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And if you recall, I gave you a homework assignment a few months ago. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, your bad students, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, getting better, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. For the most part, group project F, but we still have a few weeks. Um, Let's keep working on these. Anyway, this morning we are in the book of Zephaniah, not to be confused with Zechariah. He's a few books from now. So this morning, uh, Zephaniah, and as you are turning there, My normal practice to take one of Paul's prayers and to make it our own. And so this prayer this morning is out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and on. So let's pray together. This morning, we acknowledge you, Lord, as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Lord, as we enter into your scriptures in Zephaniah, pray that you would point our minds, our hearts towards the glory of your gospel through uh, this minor prophet. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So Zephaniah, uh, starting in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we'll read through chapter 2, verse 3. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill the master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, A cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of martyr, for in all the traitors are no more, and all who weigh out silver are cut off, 
At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath in that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I'll bring disaster on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, who seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And together, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, so before I dive into this passage, a quick announcement. Uh, it's last minute, but uh, thought someone might be interested. A friend of mine who has two tickets to the Super Bowl, 50-yard line box seats, paid 2500 each, but he didn't realize last year when he bought them, it was going to be on the same day as his wedding. If you are interested, he's looking for someone to take his place. It's at St. Michael's Church, 3 p.m., the bride's name is Jenny. She'll be the one in a white dress. Four that's. That was unexpected, but kind of funny. That joke actually represents God's people. God has established a covenant relationship with his people, a marriage, if you will. But they have left him at the altar, so to speak, to pursue the altars of foreign gods. Often at the heart of the minor prophets is this message. You are running to other lovers. Turn back to the Lord before it's too late. The third that. That's us. This is not just... God's people back then that chase after other lovers, other idols. This is us as well. Our hearts are prone to wander, and we need the message of Zephaniah this morning, the fourth. That's John Harvitt's joke. If you did not care for it, I blame John. <laughs> John sent that to me on uh, Friday morning. I thought, yeah, that's the, story of, that's the story of God's people. That's the story of us that God has committed himself to his people in a covenant. And at the heart of the covenant is a promise. The covenant formula, loud and proud. I will be your God, 
and you will be my people. God declared, I will be faithful. And he has proved his faithfulness throughout the scriptures. As you think about all the covenants that he has established with his people, he has raised up leaders over and over with covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. But every single time God was faithful, God's people were not faithful. What was God's answer? God's answer we find in Jeremiah 31, also picked up in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8. I'll summarize, uh, summarize it a bit. Behold, this is Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with my people, not like the one, not like the ones that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make. I will put my laws within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hey, Jeremiah knows the covenant formula, right? He goes on, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the glorious new covenant. What's so glorious about this covenant? It is Jesus. It is all about Jesus. He is the one that took the covenant curse on our behalf. And with that, we're forgiven and set free because of his death on the cross. So we're forgiven and set free to do what? To live as his treasured possession, to embrace the covenant from the heart. And what does it mean to embrace the covenant from the heart? To trust the Lord with all aspects of our life that he really does intend to bless. Think about the covenant with Abraham. To live in obedience to his law, his commands. Think of the covenant with Moses. To put our allegiance under the true king, the Lord. Again, think of the covenant with David. But rather than live as God's treasured possession, living in light of that faithfully, oftentimes our hearts are prone to wander, and they wander after our own little treasured possessions, things that we think will bless us, things that we think will bring us the satisfaction that only God can provide. So again, Sunday morning, it's a reset, it's a reminder of what life is really about. And the minor prophets were constantly aiming at the covenant community of God's people. And with the message to embrace the covenant with the heart, live faithfully to him. And also, often the message, and we find it again this morning, that the day of the Lord is near. A day of judgment against wickedness. A day of salvation for the faithful. But because God is serious about judgment, we must be serious about our faith. The minor prophets are pretty serious about this. And I, I was actually, actually, as I was reading through Zephaniah uh, this week, it hit me. I, all the minor prophets are serious, and, and this hit me as more serious this week. And I wonder if it's because recognizing that Zephaniah is speaking to the covenant people of God back then, and I'm preaching to the covenant people of God right now. But the truth is, some back then, just like some in here and watching, 
have not truly embraced the covenant from the heart. Seeking to really live a life of faith. Not serious about confession of of sin and repentance. Not embracing the Lord. Not taking our sins as serious as God takes them. So the question this morning is, in light of the fact that God is serious about judgment, we're called to be serious about our faith. How serious are you about your faith in light of the fact that the scriptures tell us that the day of the Lord is near? And with that question, Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that this, uh, that this is um, Zephaniah speaking to Judah. Right? Zephaniah is speaking to Judah. So what we know already is Assyria has already come in and, and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. But before, uh, or Zephaniah is writing, before Babylon has come to conquer the southern kingdom. So this is a warning to Judah. And what we find in chapter 1, this is mostly directed to the people of God, to Judah. So, verses 2 and 3. says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Okay. Notice that this doesn't begin... Dear Judah, hope you are doing well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right? It's no, Judah, you are not doing well. This is strong language. The phrase sweep away is three times in these verses. And this takes us back to the creation account as this talks about the, the man and the beast, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. But back in the creation account, this is really pointing towards the flood in Genesis 6, when God declared that he would wipe away mankind as a judgment against sin. This is judgment language. This is the good creator looking at the wickedness in the earth and saying, no, no more. And this reference to sweeping away the rubble with the wicked, most likely a reference to idolatry. And that's a theme that will continue on in this book. Verses 4 through 6. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Now, Baal, B-A-L, false god. This would be the gods of the Canaanites, the Amorites. Literally in the Hebrew would mean master, lord, possessor, or even husband. So Baal represents the false gods of the pagan nations around God's people. I'll go on in verse 4 through 6. And the name of the idolatrous priest, along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Okay, that means altars on the roofs to bow down to the stars. They treated the stars like gods. And goes on. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, false god, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So to be clear, this is talking about people within the covenant community that have turned back. They've turned away from the Lord and they are turning to other false gods. 
My guess is that none of us, like the people back then, have built an altar on our roof to a false god. So, whoo, we're okay, aren't we? No, we are not. Um, And maybe our culture is not that far from the Baal culture of this time period as well. Maybe we're not so safe. Because if just we could say a lot about the culture back in that day surrounding the false gods, but at least a couple of things. One is Baal worship was all about prosperity, trusting these false gods that they would flourish them, that they would cause their crops, their animals, their people to be, and I'm going to use this language particularly intentional, to be fruitful and multiply. That was the language that the Lord called his people to, to look to him that God would be, cause his people to be fruitful, to multiply, that his glory would spread across the face of the earth. But they are seeking other gods to be fruitful and multiply. That is not good. The second one, Baal culture was all about sexual immorality. If I can quote from one of the commentators who said, sexual acts were performed where Baal could see and be stimulated to bring about the fertility of land, animals, and people. And from this came the rampant cult prostitution back in the Old Testament that was enticing to God's people as well. So essentially, they took God's good gift of sex and used it for wicked purposes. So maybe we don't build physical altars on our roofs, unless maybe we want to count like technological advances that allow us to stream things into our home, or maybe devices in our hands that allow us to stream, to watch, to listen to the culture of Baal all the time, offering us the good life, the good life through prosperity and money and success and prosperity through sexual immorality, the good life through sexual immorality, And God says, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. The rest of chapter 1 is a strong warning of why God's people are to guard their hearts. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Okay, day of the Lord. So we've talked about this in the past with other prophets. Day of the Lord is a particular phrase that we find throughout the prophets. And this is a theme that essentially uh, what, what the prophets had in mind was a day when God would intervene in history in a significant way for his people. This is a day of judgment against sin, but it is also a day of salvation for God's people. And as I've mentioned in here before, there were multiple days of the Lord, you could say, let's say lowercase d, of judgment that God would bring upon his people or the nations. But all of them pointed forward to an ultimate day, capital D-A-Y, of the Lord. A day when God would bring ultimate judgment on the earth, but it would also be ultimate blessing and salvation for God's people. So, Zephaniah is picking up this theme of the day of the Lord. And look at how he describes it. It says, verse 7, be silent, which conveys this message of be in awe before 
the presence of God, the judge. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day is near. Again, silence and repentance is the only proper response before a holy God. And then Zephaniah says, For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. What does that mean? There's a bit of a debate on what that, what that means. I think likely what that's referring to is the guests are those who will be sacrificed, be judged, meaning God's people understood the sacrificial system, that the sacrifices atoned for sin and averted God's wrath, but this is a warning to the nations of people who do not repent, that they will be judged for their sin. God is serious about judgment. And to summarize this chapter, it is a day of punishment. That word punishment shows up three different times in this section. Punish, I will punish, punish, punish. He will punish idolatry. Verse 9, he'll punish violence and fraud. Verse 12, he will punish those who are, who, who are complacent in their sin. And then verse 15, a day of wrath is that day. Listen to how Zephaniah describes this day of the Lord. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. If you're thinking, wow, where have I heard that before? This is Exodus 19. This is God manifesting his presence, uh, his presence on Mount Sinai in a powerful way. Similar language here. Then he goes on, verses 16 through 18. A day of trumpet blast and a battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they, should, they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In other words, money and possessions won't satisfy, won't save you at that point. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. So what is this wrath all about? This wrath is actually all about covenant love. Did you catch that phrase? In the fire of his jealousy. That phrase will also be mentioned again in chapter 3, verse 8. See, God has revealed himself in Scripture in relational terms, in terms of love, as a faithful husband. And his people are to be the faithful bride. Even think back to the Ten Commandments. Right before the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, God reveals, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God is saying, I have rescued you to be my treasured possession. And then he goes on with the Ten Commandments. So no other gods, the first one. The second one, no idols. And he goes on in the second commandment to say, for I am a jealous God. There's no room for any other lovers. Let's think of it this way. Let's use a marriage covenant as the example. Over the years, as I've done weddings, as we do weddings at Grace, we use... Uh, pastors here use the same vows, and it's essentially this. Just think about, think about this for a vow. I, state your name, take you, state your name, to be your faithful wife or husband, 
And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife in plenty and in want, joy and sorrow, in sickness and health, as long as we both shall live, dot, 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 unless we want to pursue other lovers. I like, no, that is not what the marriage covenant is all about. That's not how it works. Thanks to Zephaniah, I'm thinking about adding one in the marriage covenant where I would say, I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife in plenty and want, joy and sorrow, sickness and health, as long as we both shall live in the fire of my jealousy, for I am a jealous lover. Now that's a covenant of marriage, right? That's also the covenant of the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament that the covenant of marriage is actually to reflect the covenant with our Lord. No room for idols, meaning other lovers. It's exclusive love. It is all about faithfulness. And if you haven't noticed, the minor prophets spend a lot of time talking about this sin of idolatry, and they refer to it as spiritual adultery. And with that, again, because God is serious about judgment, we are to be serious about our faith, and part of that is seeking to root out the idols in our lives. With that, I want to just read parts of the intro of a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. He has some helpful things to say about idolatry. As I read this, I want you to take mental notes of the things that hit you that you wonder, huh, maybe that might be an idol in my life, because we're going to come back to it later. He says, to contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from those ancient ones, though. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each has its shrines, whether the office tower, the spas, the gyms, the studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessing of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement? We may not physically bow before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incest to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. He goes on. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give that seek to give you what only God can give. An idol has such a controlling position in our heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career, making money, achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. 
It can be romantic relationships, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it really is idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, and I will feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. If anything becomes more fundamental to God than your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. The Bible sometimes speaks of idols using a marital metaphor. God should be our true spouse, but when we desire and delight in other things more than God, we commit spiritual adultery. Romance or success can become false lovers. The promise to make us feel loved and valued, idols capture our imagination, and we can locate them by looking at our daydreams. What do we enjoy imagining? What are our fondest dreams? Idols give us a sense of being in control, and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? The way forward out of despair is to discern the idols of our hearts and our culture, but that will not be enough. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God, who revealed himself at both Mount Sinai and on the cross, is the only Lord who, if you can find him, will truly fulfill you, and if you, can, if, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Because God is serious about judgment, we must be serious about rooting out the idols in our lives. Chapter 2, there's a call to repentance. Chapter 2, verse, starting verse 1, gather to guess, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Do you notice before that word mentioned three times here? Repent, seek the Lord before it's too late. And then I'll sum up the rest of chapter 2. It's a, warning and a judge, it's a warning of judgment against the nations, right? In the first chapter 1, this was mostly directed to Judah, God's people. Now it's directed to the nations who taunt and boast. That phrase is used twice in verse 8 and verse 10. They taunt and boast the peop- against the people of the Lord. In verse 11, chapter 2 is a good summary. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, And to him shall bow down, each in its place, the lands of the nations. And we see this echoed into the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, with the call for every knee to bow to the Lord Jesus. Every tongue confess his name. 
But notice what happens when the warnings of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, are ignored. Again, I'll summarize chapter 2, 1 through 3. It's the call to seek the Lord, to do his just commands, to seek righteousness, to seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. But when that is ignored, look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me. This is the Lord speaking. Surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I raise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. This is a warning to those of the nations, but it is also to those in the covenant community Do you really seek the Lord? Do you really humble yourself before the Lord? Do you listen to the voice of the Lord through the scriptures? Do you accept its correction? Do you draw near to God? If you cannot answer yes to those In this judgment passage, it is a warning to you. But right after this is hope. We need that. This whole sermon so far has been about judgment. But the prophets always offer hope. The rest of chapter 3 is about hope for this remnant of people. Remnant meaning the group of people that are faithful to the Lord part of his covenant community that embraced the covenant from the heart. Start in verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time, meaning the day, the day of the Lord, again, and this is the day of blessing now that we'll see. For at that time I'll change the speech of the people to a pure speech and all, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So this, this idea of changing the people to a pure speech, likely a reference to the Tower of Babel when their speech was confused, when they came in rebellion against God, but now God is changing their speech to a pure speech and they will call upon the name of the Lord. Zephaniah is declaring that there is still hope. Jesus, and we know this, Jesus has not returned yet. There is still hope for the gospel to go out. This is where we should be reminded of Paul in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're like, yes, Lord, save them. Yes. What does Paul go on to say? But how are they to call, how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe of him of whom they've not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So if we are in Christ, we have beautiful feet, right? 
Growing up with our kids, we used to refer to their feet, you know, their toes as little tootsies. What God is calling us to do is take our little tootsies out the door, right? He's given us beautiful feet, and we are to bring with those feet a beautiful and glorious message. It's the hope of the gospel. So how do we know, again, in light of God's judgment, what does it mean to be serious about our faith? That we root out our idols and we take seriously our call as salt and light in the world. That we grieve people who are under judgment. That we take the gospel to them. Oh, yes, I know it's hard. It's scary. It's all that. It's also a command. God's also faithful. He's bigger than anybody that you're going to talk to. God calls us to be faithful. So the last one, serious about rooting out our idolatry, serious about sharing our faith, this last part, I'll end with the rest of this section, serious about being people of praise. And I'll finish with uh, reading through verses 11 through 20. And I want to highlight why we are able to be people of praise. And it's obviously all about Jesus. We'll see in here, God desires to bless us, and he promises to bless us. Look at verses 11, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. On that day you shall not be put to shame because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in them a mouth or in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. See, this remnant will be a people who follow in the footsteps of their Lord, Jesus, who was humble and lowly, humbled himself to the point of death. This passage talked about being put to shame. He was put to shame by way of the cross. Even though there was no injustice, no lies, no deceit in his mouth. And where does he plan to lead us? This refers to his people grazing and lying down. He is the good shepherd. And with that, I uh, thought it would be good Every once in a while, we, we all need Psalm 23. And I will say, some of us really need to hear Psalm 23 this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is our good shepherd who leads us. Verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. 
Notice earlier, we were to be silent for the day of the Lord is near. But that judgment has passed according to this timetable. This is in the future. This is a time of celebration, of rejoicing, of singing, of praise, because the Lord has taken away the judgment against his people. And again, glory to, the, to Christ and the cross, who was faithful as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So what we have is this picture of this good shepherd and now a picture of a good king. And then look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is covenant love. This is the Lord rejoicing in his treasured possession. When you read this, do you believe it? Do you find it hard to imagine the Lord rejoicing, singing over his people? Well, believe it. In the last section, verses 18 through 20, lots of I will statements here. And all of these I wills here in Zephaniah will come true in Christ. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change the shameless into praise, the renowned and renowned in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make your, you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. Then I will restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. I love that phrase, I will change uh, their shame, meaning shame of sin, into praise. And with that, Zephaniah has been all about the day of the Lord, but it's not just in the Old Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Because God is serious about judgment... We must be serious about our faith, rooting out idols, sharing our faith, and being people of praise. And we, be, we will. We'll be people of praise in a moment. Before then, I, I want to do this. In light of the call in chapter 1, verse 7, to be silent before the day of the Lord, for the day is near, I actually want us to take a time of silence. That'll be at my discretion. When it feels awkward, we'll keep being silent. And I want this to be a time where we really contemplate the question that was in chapter 1, verse 2. Where are we complacent 
in our sin. It's asking the overarching question, Lord, what do you think of my life? It's asking the question of the idols in our lives. That's why when I mention, we'll come back to what, you know, counterfeit gods. Take some time to think, Lord, what do you think of my, what do you think of my life and my idols? And with that, I just, uh, real quick, for the teenagers in here and on down, I have a message for you as well. You cannot make it to heaven in a minivan. And if you're like, well, my parents drive a suburban. Yeah, whatever. Here's my point. You can't get to heaven by your parents' faith. So as the adults are thinking through the ramifications of the day of the Lord, um, I want you to think through this as well. Do you own your faith? What does it look like for you to take the steps that you need to take to truly own your faith? So with that, let's take a moment to be silent before the day or before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Let's pray together. Lord, help us, knowing uh, in, in light of the fact that the day of the Lord is near, help us. Help us to be serious about our faith. And for some in here, it could be coming to faith, uh, trusting you for the first time in their life. Pray that you would do that work in their hearts and minds, that they would bow their knees before you. For others, it is recognizing sins in our lives that, are, uh, that have a hold on our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to repent. Help us to turn to you. Lord, I pray also that we would be people who are uh, convicted to share our faith. We recognize that judgment is coming and that we seek to be faithful to you as salt and light in this world. Pray that we would be people of praise, praising you no matter what. And I even think in light of our congregation of joys, but also the deep sorrows, that we would praise you uh, regardless. And, and Lord, with that, I pray for Vic Adams, um, who has uh, struggling with severe lumbar stenosis, that uh, you would uh, help him in his pain, especially as he is scheduled to see a, a neurologist. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give him, give that neurologist good wisdom, good treatment plan, be with Vic. Pray also, Lord, we give thanks for Adrienne King that uh, she is recovering from COVID and pneumonia, uh, gaining strength. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to heal her. Dave Santee as well, we give you thanks for making uh, the steady progress. Pray that, um, that you would continue to heal his body. For Monica Duncan, diagnosed with Graves' disease, Lord, that you would protect her, protect her eyes, her thyroid levels, that they would come down to normal, be with that family as they, uh, as, they seek, uh, as they seek your face, seek healing, treatment, Lord, be with them. For Von Heck, who continues to severely struggle with chronic fatigue, has breathing issues at times, Lord, as they continue, even these tests they're going to be running the next few weeks, Lord, please, please provide an answer. More than anything, Lord, we ask you, heal him. For Keith, Ed uh, White's brother, um, who is undergoing chemotherapy for lung cancer, Lord, be with him and, uh, and the treatments that, again, we pray for healing. Also, just pray for 
your peace uh, for that family and for Janelle Slater, uh, the pain in her left shoulder as well as chemotherapy on her body. Lord, again, we ask that you would heal. We ask that you would bring comfort and peace where needed and, and for the Harvits as well. So they make decisions regarding John's colon cancer. Again, strength, comfort. Thanks that you're a God that you go before us. Thanks that you're a God who is sovereign and powerful and perfectly good and wise. So we rely on you and pray, Lord, would you heal him as well? And Lord, you know the other needs of our congregation. You know what we need. Thanks that you're with us. Thanks that you are a good king. You are a good shepherd. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And please stand for the benediction. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And amen.